Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. This is Jackson, never known to kick a dirty flow, but I'm hanging out with friends here at Nerdy Show. Don't believe everything you see, don't believe anything your mom tells you, and don't take your mom to Zales, when it's 25% off. Jackson, Grand Buffet Worldwide represents... Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. And I'm John. And you're joining us for another Moogfest Bound episode. That's a series of episodes we're doing leading up to Moogfest, a music arts and technology festival in Asheville, North Carolina, happening April 23rd and 27th. In the past, it's just been a music festival, but now they are expanding to futurism and technology and If it's everything it promises to be, it's going to be a whirlwind event. John and I are going to be there along with Brian from Flame On. And in the meantime, we're interviewing some of the people who are going to be putting on panels and appearing or performing at Moogfest. Previously, we talked with David X. Cohen, the executive producer of Futurama. And this episode, we're going to be talking with Claire Evans of Yacht, who's also the editor-at-large for Omni Reboot, the electronic reboot of the legendary Omni Science Fiction magazine. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking with Mark Fraunfelder, the editor-in-chief of Make Magazine and Boing Boing, and Neil Harbison, the world's first government-recognized cyborg. So uh, since we got Claire on, she's a huge fan of, uh, of science fiction. I mean, obviously, she resurrected Omni, so that's a big deal. Recently, it was announced that uh, BBC America has put together a four-part miniseries called The Real History of Science Fiction. That's going to air just before Moogfest on April 19th, or at least the first episode will. And it is ridiculously star-studded. It's insane. You should just read it. It, it, it literally does not make rational sense. Uh, you have a very good point, John. I will just read the annotated version of who is going to be on this. William Shatner, Nathan Fillion, Zoe Saldana of Avatar and Star Trek, Stephen Moffat from Doctor Who, Richard Dreyfus, Close Encounters, obviously, Chris Carter of The X-Files, who was on one of our shows not too very long ago, Ronald D. Moore, Battlestar Galactica, John Landis, American Werewolf in London, David Tennant, Christopher Lloyd, Rutger Howard, John fucking Carpenter, Karen Gillan of Doctor Who, Neil Gaiman, Kim Stanley Robinson of the Mars Trilogy, Scott Bakula, Ursula K. Le Guin, Sid Mead, one of the greatest designers of all time, who's maybe most famous for Blade Runner, but he did pretty much everything, Aliens, all of it, Kenny Baker, Anthony Daniels, 
Nichelle Nichols, Peter Weller, Edward James Olmos, and uh, the list does in fact go on. That's just mostly the actors that they highlighted because this whole exploration of the history of science fiction, uh, it does in fact extend to others in the field like uh, there's some synopses up of the episodes. Episode one is robots, episode two is space, episode three is invasion, and episode four is time. In it, they give hints they're talking to other people. They're talking to Phil Tippett the amazing stop-motion animator who is responsible for a lot of the work on Star Wars and Jurassic Park, people who are involved with the original RoboCop, even William Gibson, the writer of Neuromancer, is going to be in this thing. It goes on and on. Like, lots of, uh, not just the actors, but also the filmmakers and the writers are involved with this project. So hopefully it will live up to the awesomeness of its guest list alone and uh, make for a really cool exploration of uh, all that makes up science fiction. It does actually get a bit abstract in these descriptions, For example, in Invasion, they don't just approach the idea of an alien invasion, but also humanity dealing with mass experiences with other life forms, be it the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park or E.T., and then it gets even more abstract with the time episode. So we'll link to where you can read these synopses and all that, but uh, it it seems to be pretty cool. So that's uh, something new happening uh, 10 p.m. April 19th on BBC America. I don't know if it's an original series for BBC America, if they're borrowing it from BBC, but if, if it's a BBC America original, that would be well, that'd be kind of huge for them. They're just kind of a recycling machine normally. So uh, that's, that's your sci-fi news break for right now. We're going to be talking with Claire in a moment. She's putting on a panel called Xenomusic, Science Fiction and the Synthesized Sound. The description goes like this. Turn on the radio in the year 3000. What will you hear? When we make first contact with an alien race, will we, as in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, communicate through melody? If the future has a sound, what could it possibly be? Omni Reboot has assembled a crack team of future dreamers to answer these and many more questions. Will we picture the mundane realities of the future? Provide a soundtrack to science fiction landscapes? Ponder what science fiction film music tells us about our expectations for tomorrow? And hazard some guesses at the musical aesthetics of extraterrestrials. So I guess the, the question then winds up being, as we're asking these questions through this panel, would we then be creating one of the futures that we talk about? Maybe. I mean, the thing is, there's going to be so many incredible people at MoogFest this year, via the guest list alone, that I think that it's just a statistical likelihood that professionals and people who are there who witness it are going to walk away from the show with new ideas that they might say, like, I came up with that idea at, uh, at MoogFest because, yeah. I, because I talked to such and such a person or because I saw such and such a panel. It, it'll be like uh, that late 1970s uh, Sex Pistols concert that like inspired a, a shit ton of noteworthy bands for the 1980s that all those people happened to be there and they saw the show and it just inspired them so much that all of a sudden we got like Joy Division and Simply Red, even though those two things are completely disparate from each other. Yeah, th- that's exactly the point, though. Like just by posing the question, you're helping to create the future then. That's, that's going to be a nuts panel. Now, there's going to be lots of nuts panels, and this is one of the ones I'm looking forward to quite a bit. Because I mean, it's extra nuts. It's extra, <laughs> extra, just like, oh my God. They, they have a guy from SETI who decides what kind of what, messages. What to say to aliens. Yeah, what, right? he, he decides. Yeah. He's, he's a person who decides what aliens should hear, and he's on this panel about what music in the future is going to be like. I mean, that's ridiculous. One might say that he is, in fact, an ambassador to all Xeno tribes of the universe. He's one of those people who. <laughs> It's like in, in Why the Last Man, when all the men in the world, except for one guy, dies, and this woman who's like the Secretary of Agriculture wakes up and she ends up being the president because of like, you know, stuff that happened. It, it, that's that's going to sound completely crazy. It sounds but, like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, sure. That, that too. 
but but this like this SETI guy. I mean, he's one of those people from a, from a science fiction story who could wake up one day and be the most important person in the world because of something he's done or something he needs to do because of his crazy ass job that didn't apply until all of a sudden we heard back from somebody. Right, because SETI's completely worthless until they aren't. Right, as far as the government's concerned, I think they're awesome. There are definitely not enough humanitarian and pure science endeavors going on. It's always like, well, what can you do for me? Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard for the things that aren't militarized to, uh, to get attention. But when you're like militarized or worth a couple billion a year. Right. That's why mining asteroids is going to be the only thing that gets us out into space in earnest. Ah, uh, commerce. Anyway, let's, uh, let's get Claire on the phone and talk about this panel and get maybe a little bit better idea of what's in store for us and uh, other cool sci-fi stuff. Hello, everyone. Claire, you got a panel at Moogfest this year called Xenomusic, Science Fiction and the Synthesized Sound. It sounds like a exciting exploration of the future of music, where it could be both um, fictional and perhaps grounded in science as well. Were you approached by Moogfest to put on something? Did you come to them? No, they approached me sort of in fits and starts. First, they asked me to speak at Moogfest, which I signed on to do a long time ago. And then later, they sort of realized that I was running a magazine and they were interested in collaborating in some capacity. So then they asked me to put on a panel and then Yacht got asked to play, I think mostly out of convenience at that point because I was already going to be there. So now I'm involved in at least three capacities. I'm also writing an essay for the Moogfest program this year. So I've kind of got it on lock, the whole Moogfest thing. Yeah. So as per usual with your career, you're exploring every possibility. Yeah, I like to, you know, I think that I'm interested in synergy. I'm interested in, I don't know, Jonna, my partner and I both we don't want to place any limitations on what we do or what defines what we do because rock and roll, as exciting as it can be, also can be extremely predictable and can, it can be very easy to fall into the sort of standard rock and roll complacency of going from one place to the next, playing the same songs over and over again. And, and that can be limiting after a long time and you start to feel a little bit penned in. So for us, anything that we can do to make our experiences more engaging, more interesting, that allow us to have bigger, broader, and more exciting conversations with different kinds of people, and also allow us to display the fact that we're fully fleshed out human beings that care about more than just music or playing shows. We read and we watch films and we are passionate about things, and I'm passionate about science and science fiction, and I don't really feel that there's any reason for me to place boundaries on any of those things. So to be able to express every manifestation of my interest and my career in one space is very, very rare. I think Mugfest is exceptional in that capacity, that it's actually bridging music, art, science, technology, and maybe a little bit of science fiction, if I have anything to do with it. Uh, <laughs> that's really special. You know, I don't, there's not a lot of places where we can do that. So I'm really going all the way with this one. It is. I mean, like, I always really enjoyed the festival in prior years, but it's played up to every yeah. strength it possibly could. If it lives up to be what it promises to be, it will be hopefully one of the most incredible events anyone's ever put on. And as far as... I know. They've, they've kicked it into overdrive for sure this year. I think they've, they brought in a completely new set of programmers. All the daytime programming, I think, is like they're going in a completely new direction with it. And I think they can't go wrong. I mean, the amount of cool, interesting people under one roof or one, under one sky for the course of those four days, I mean, nothing can go wrong. Even if it's a disaster, it'll still be a lot of really great conversations. <laughs> <laughs> there doesn't seem to be too much talent in one place for anything to be yeah. truly tragic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Before we talk about the panel itself, let's talk a little bit about uh, Omni Reboot. Sure. Omni obviously had a, a long and storied and legendary tenure as a science fiction magazine. And uh, I was floored when, you know, someone from the music industry said, oh, I like that. You know, I'll, I'll bring it back. I'll pick it up again. 
what's the experience been like bringing Omni back? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not just like one day I woke up in the morning and I said, I'm going to bring back Omni. It's actually a very bizarre chain of events that led me to this position. You know, I'm like a lot of people that are interested in the things that I'm interested in. Omni represented a certain kind of gonzo inquiry that really defines the way that I think about science fiction. I really loved it as a magazine. Obviously, I'm a little bit too young to have bought it on newsstands, really, but <laughs> I came across a treasure trove of it once at an estate sale, and I have a huge collection, and I like it's my go-to sort of reference for a way of bringing together very serious science journalism and a kind of like screwy, adventurous, fun, intellectual... You know, it, 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 it encompasses so many things without being pretentious and without being unapproachable. It it was a warm and inviting magazine. So I wrote a piece actually about the history of Omni for Motherboard, which is a website that I write for sometimes. And I interviewed a lot of the currently still alive editors of the magazine. I dug into its history and I did sort of a survey. And then about a month after I published that, my editor told me that there was a man in New Jersey who owned the Omni archives and would I like to go out and visit them slash him because I clearly had an interest in this magazine. I said, of course, I happened to be on tour at the time. I was playing in New York. I had a day off. I went to New Jersey. I spent the day with this man, Jeremy Frommer, who is an entrepreneur, ex-Wall Street guy that accidentally bought the entire archives of Bob Guccione, who was the publisher of Omni and Penthouse, was for a time the richest man in America, but died bankrupt. And his estate was a bit partitioned off and sent to all corners of the world after his death. Accidentally bought Bob Guccione's entire estate in a storage locker auction. Like wow. Storage War style was bidding on lockers with his daughter as like a hobby. And he opened up one of these lockers and he found the first print of Caligula, which is a movie that Bob Guccione <laughs> produced, um, a bunch of weird papers and things that didn't add up as being just junk. And so he dug further. He realized what he had. He used some findings from that storage locker to get the rest of the estate, ended up buying the entire estate, and now owns Omni, the brand, owns a lot of the penthouse archives and a lot of Bob Guccione's personal effects, and has tried to kind of do this Guccione revival. I haven't been involved in a lot of the Guccione stuff, but Omni, you know, I went out to New Jersey, I met this guy, I went through all of the archives. It was like nerd Shangri-La, for sure. I mean, it was just drawers and drawers and drawers of original acetates, cover art, all of the original magazines with like the proof copies with like notes in them and all of the budgets for each issue of the magazine. Bob Guccione spent a spectacular amount of money on art uh, and paid his writers spectacularly well at the time to the point that now as an editor, when I was reaching out to some of the original contributors, the first question they all had was like, (laughs) does it still pay as well as it did in 1979? Of course not. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like the first thing that Bruce Sterling asked actually, which is really funny. But yeah, so I was there for the day and less than a week later, I was on the phone with Jeremy, who owned the estate, interviewing him for a follow-up piece, and he offered me the job. And was it fate? I don't know. But obviously I said, you like, do you even, do you know how, do you know me? Have, do you have, have you even Googled me? Like, <laughs> do you know who I am? Do you think I'm qualified to do this? And he was like, whatever, you seem like you have it figured out. So I took the job and three weeks later, we relaunched the magazine. It's total madness. Dude, that's um, magical. <laughs> I know. It's pretty insane. I mean, I had to say yes because of how insane it was, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a, I've been a journalist for years. Playing in a rock band and doing art stuff has been my primary pursuit. And my journalism, as much as I love it, I've never worked my way up through the chain of command. Like, I shouldn't have been given an editor-in-chiefdom after being a freelancer for as long as I was. But 
I took the job. We relaunched. I'm now editor at large, which is a bit more of a broad position. It allows me to do stuff like the Omni panel, and I don't really deal with day to day anymore. But I ran it day to day for six months, and it was amazing and terrifying and a lot of pressure because, of course, so many people have so many distinct and fond memories of what Omni was what it represented for them. A lot of people that I have spoken to over the months have credited Omni with defining who they are as scientists, as science fiction writers, as artists. It has a lot of influence. It's kind of in the DNA of a lot of interesting people. And I felt like being given that job was kind of like being given a key into a lot of doors. Because if you just say, I'm with Omni, a lot of people will respond to you that probably wouldn't have otherwise. So it's been a real blessing and a totally whirlwind thing. So the uh, Xeno Music panel at Moogfest, were you the brains behind assembling that? Oh, yeah, totally. That's all me. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. I mean, right now, my, my job at Omni is kind of special projects and special experiences. So I'm trying to do more and more of these kinds of things because, you know, running a magazine is one thing. And it's a lot of the conversations that I had with my employer when we started doing Omni Reboot was, you know, Omni was a print magazine. It was ve- a very much a print magazine. It was very much about paper stock. I don't know if you remember, but like, you know, they had these silver pages and this incredible art. I mean, it was a very lush physical thing. And people really remember it as being the kind of thing that you keep on your bookshelf for years. Transitioning that to a website, I mean, something is lost a little bit. And I think for us, we can sort of help fill those missing pieces a little bit by having more experiences out in the world that are outside of just a blog. So we're trying to do more and more of these real life conversations, real life happenings, you know, places where we can actually engage with people directly and have conversations that go beyond the page. That's really cool. It's definitely one of the most exciting, I mean, in, in a list of very exciting events and panels <laughs> at Moogfest, it's right up there, like at the top oh, tier. You flatter me, flatter me. You've assembled this uh, motley crew of really cool personalities, like musicians and, and artists, and then like the SETI director of Interstellar Message Composition. Yeah, Doug Vakosh. It's going to be interesting. I mean, you know, when I was thinking about what to do for Moogfest, I think the thing that really jumped out at me is just... What is the relationship of music to the future and in music to the fictional representation of the future, i.e. science fiction? You see a lot of science fiction movies, and I always feel like when you see like a club scene or a disco in a science fiction movie, it's the music is always wrong. It's never... <laughs> it's, it's inevitably never like techno. Music, it's always techno, I think, because that's shorthand for futuristic. You know, right. electronic music is shorthand for futuristic music. And that has been the case throughout the entire history of science fiction film. I mean... If you really think about it, music in 200 years, music in 1,000 years, it's not going to be even recognizable as anything that we would recognize as being music now. It's surfing the edge of cultural trends that we don't even know where they are or where they're going to emerge from yet. So I think talking about how one can create music for science fiction that is future-proof, I mean, that might be an impossible pursuit, but how do you <laughs> do that? How do you go about make, that? And yeah, in, very interesting dialogue. <laughs> I think it is an impossible thing to do. I think, you know, the nature of science fiction is not to be necessarily prophetic or extrapolative in a way that you can hold accountable. You know, it's, it's one thing to say like, oh, William Gibson invented cyberspace, but that's not what anyone sets out to do, I think, really. I mean, it's, science fiction is literature. You can't hold literature to a standard of like whether or not it got the future right. I think you're missing something pretty fundamental if you're holding it to that standard. But, you know, impossible questions usually lead to interesting conversations. So we're trying to do a kind of interdisciplinary conversation. We have a musician, King Britt, who is making scores to artwork from the Omni Archives, sort of like creating, I guess, retro futuristic speculations that are the audio equivalent of some of the artwork that we have. That's awesome. 
yeah, it's a little bit of a mindfuck. Well, um, it, it really plays up to being able to do something different that you couldn't do with a print magazine. So that's great. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We couldn't have done that. I mean, maybe that could have been done in the seventies. I wish it had. I'm sure. It awesome. <laughs> like like <laughs> one of those, um, like they print vinyl so thin that it was like floppy and you could push, oh, push it out. Disc. Yeah. Flexi discs. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, even now after having worked at Omni and dealing with the archives for as long as I have, I still discover things that Omni printed or released as special materials that i didn't know existed i think there is some kind of musical thing but no one has access to it oh, they, there was man. some kind of omni compilation or something how that cool I found would that be of online. i don't know what it is I, there was there was an omni tv show for some time for a season called omni the new frontier in 1981 or something i've seen a few episodes and it was totally amazing but it's really really hard to find we only have two episodes of the archive. I don't know. Looked far and wide to try to find the other episodes, but they seem to be lost to the sands of time. But yeah, there's a lot of materials like that. Wow. Well, this is an APB, guys. If you know where there's more Omni. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> we need it. We want it for the archives. But yeah, the rest of the panel is going to be really cool, too. We have Doug Vakosh from SETI, who is the director of Interstellar Message Composition, i.e. his job is thinking about how we write messages to extraterrestrial life talking about the aesthetics of aliens it's a talk he's given before he's doing a different version of it for us that specifically centers on music but i was about I mean, to say like which part of the aesthetics of aliens <laughs> i think it's just kind of like thinking about i'm trusting him on this one but <laughs> it's impossible to know the nature or qualities of extraterrestrial life i mean the very by by definition it's alien and we can never know even if it exists so if we were to write a message to them or if we were to try to communicate with them through music how would we do it you know would we create something that had meaning how can we even assume that extraterrestrial life interprets sound as meaning or sound at all depending uh, yeah exactly or you know, what value you know sharing our music would have would it even translate there's an, an alan moore short story he wrote for green lantern once about a lantern who lived in a uh, part of the galaxy where there were no stars and mm. uh he was chosen by the ring because he didn't know fear, but he had no eyes because he didn't need them. So his energy for the ring translated as, as sound. And instead of being a green lantern, he was the F sharp bell. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice. I was reading the description for Xena music and, and thinking about music in the future. The one thing that always unnerves me about music in the future, my own fears of getting old and losing touch with culture is uh, in Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, he presents this concept that anyone who's unaugmented will sort of fall out with modern music. Everyone will be so augmented that there's no way that anyone could actually perceive what's being considered music in the future anymore. Wow. That's a bleak point of view. Although I guess I suppose I agree. I mean, I think the music of the future will probably be electronic, not because electronic music is futuristic or that electronic sounds have more one-to-one -one relationship with like the recording medium, but because I think the ears of the future will probably not be ours. I think the ears of the future will probably be, you know, those of the artificial intelligences that we have created or created for ourselves as part of ourselves. It's a scary thought, but, you know, aesthetics are relative, and maybe there is something very beautiful about that that we don't yet understand. Yeah, like, I, I'm not a Luddite by any means, but I'm always a little like, apprehensive of living a life where my human experience is modified entirely to that yeah. extent. Yeah, I'm not, a, I, I'm not a big Kurzweil fan, if that makes you feel any better. I, I think that, like, this idea of trying to escape death through technological hubris <laughs> is, a, is, like, very dangerous territory for the human race. <laughs> we seem to be coming across a lot of those lately. How do you mean, John? You know, the constant security messes, the robotization of the military. It's mm -hmm. like, where do you start exactly? Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
the future is terrible. I mean, <laughs> you can't, you can't think about it. You know, I like, I, I think you guys probably had this experience too. Being a big science fiction reader, it's really hard not to read the news and not read every single thing as the premise to some dystopian oh, yeah. novel. Yep. <laughs> but that's, you have to separate the two a little bit. I mean, not everything is narrative in that way. Not everything is leading to some horrific climax. Maybe it is, but we can't know. There's just, there's too much randomness and, and complexity to every single thing. You know, the day-to-day world of the present future that we live in is so abstract and subtle in a lot of ways that, you know, no one could have ever truly committed it to paper and had anybody glance over it and think, oh, what a brilliant and stunning vision of the future. <laughs> I've been kind of looking and waiting to like read a sci-fi piece where I feel like based on where we're living now, this might actually be plausible how abstract it is, how it fits together, but it's like Mm. familiar, but different. Have you come across anything recently that that felt like it it didn't go too far, that it may actually present a fair window for like, you know, 20, 30, 50 years in the future? I don't know. I mean, I think the world is so complex. It's impossible to portray just like one piece of art. But you know what? I'm, maybe this, I'll get some guff for this, but I actually think that her, the Spike Jones movie, was the closest to sort of a naturalistic feeling near future scenario that I have seen in a really long time. It felt to me like it was science fictional in, in a kind of cultural sense, less in a technological sense. I don't even really necessarily mean the relationship between the man and the operating system, because I think that's a little bit like, I don't know, sexist maybe. But I think that the world, like the fact that people would not be shocked by that doesn't seem that far away. We're in a situation where it's so easy for people to feel affection towards characters just that have a, a, a nuance of humanity to them. Even if you're playing yeah. something simple like Animal Crossing, you still feel something for them, even though you shouldn't. Dude, I mean, you see like a trash can that has a handle that looks like a nose and you're like, oh, what a little guy. I mean, we as humans, as soon as there's a face on something, we love it. <laughs> I used to feel like really freaked out by the future. But a couple of years ago, I worked on a project at Carnegie Mellon, a book project on one of our sort of days off we got to visit the robotics lab and i i remember coming face to face with like a pretty rudimentary sort of robotics experiment just a human size like shit robot i can't even remember what it was and i remember looking at it and thinking like oh okay like i get it i'm suddenly unafraid of a future that includes something like this because i feel some kind of weird tenderness for it and maybe it's like this freudian uncanny thing where you just like see your double and you know there's something kind of profoundly human about the feeling that you have toward that double or what but i think you know everything that seems shocking <laughs> becomes normal as soon as it enters your direct experience claire i was wondering when did you first get online as a kid mm, good question early really early my dad worked for intel we were i was i was on the computer i can't remember a time before it actually i wow. cannot remember a time before i had a computer and i think was regularly online by the time I was like eight or nine. It's pretty foggy, but yes. That's something. Yeah, I think it probably explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I had a website when I was a little kid. I remember chat, like just chat rooms, like being a v child and being in like ch- chat rooms for children. You remember that part, that time in the internet where like such a thing could possibly exist yeah. and not be immediately just the most disgusting cesspool <laughs> of perversion? <laughs> It didn't last very long, but I do remember it. <laughs> How many people in the room are actually children? Yeah, who knows? Maybe I, mean, maybe I was just a child at the time, so I didn't really know. I was guilty of haunting every role-playing chat room in AOL. I, mean. <laughs> I was deep in. I was always deep in. As a teenager, like, I moved. This is, gonna be, this is going to be maybe the most embarrassing thing I've ever said in an interview, but <laughs> I moved to California. I went to college in California because I met my boyfriend on a Weezer message board. That was, like, my entire life for four years. I haunted this one Weezer message board 
day in and day out like a lunatic. And the entire trajectory of my life was based on like decisions I made based on my relationship to people on that message board. That's which beautiful. I believe still exists. Yeah, it's just real. <laughs> Something John and I were uh, were talking about earlier in the episode is uh, mm-hmm. the BBC recently announced that they've got this four-part series they're doing in April called The Real History of Science Fiction, and it's jam-packed with actors who were in TV and film, and then also some authors and some people who were behind the scenes for creating like Robocop, The World of Aliens, like a lot of really incredible names, like the list of everybody involved is ridiculous. John Carpenter, Rutger Hauer, Chris Carter. Man, I really wanted to get John Carpenter for my panel at MoogFest, but he doesn't do that kind of thing. But I like I really want to see him talk about making his own scores to his films because he was such a awesome synth geek. That would be incredible. <laughs> I know. I tried. I really tried. <laughs> I mean, now at least everybody knows that you tried yeah. and that's that's worth he something. Made a really valiant effort. <laughs> So it's a, it's a four-part thing. There's an episode about robots, an episode about space, an episode about invasion, and an episode about time. Oh, awesome. Like, this is news to me. They pretty much got everyone who is anybody ever in the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, all, all in this one damn thing. <laughs> the only thing absent at all is, is, of course, it's just like TV, movie, and like they added books, which is a novelty. But like yeah. none of the video games or anything that have sort of been, you know, sort of pushing around in the sci-fi world at all. Like, not at all. Doesn't mm. include... Mm. Must be too far out of industry, I guess, but it's yeah. just too much material, maybe, you know? They gotta pare it down. Maybe. John and I were talking about um things that weren't named on there, like short stories and uh building blocks of bigger science fiction pieces. And um weirdly enough, in the description for the time episode they mentioned Groundhog Day. <sighs> Which is a brilliant exploration of time and what it can do to the human psyche, but uh it's not a science fiction in that it doesn't have you know, some kind of a of a device, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it deals with one of the core elements of any good science fiction, which is a, a massive philosophical conflict. And I was thinking about that, about how Twilight Zone generally represented that philosophical conflict as well. And uh, I was wondering what stories that you've read recently do you think exhibited profound philosophical conflicts for mankind as one of the cornerstones of good Jeez. science fiction? Jesus, that's a hell of a question. <laughs> you know, I think that for me, like the ultimate SF investigator of those questions will always be Philip K. Dick, kind of my go-to for that kind of thing. And I think that like, I mean, what you're saying about a movie like Groundhog Day not having a device, I mean, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes don't have a device in the same sense either. And I think that a lot of Dick stories are the same way where it's like, it has like the trappings of science fiction, like there's moon colonies and rockets, but like that part of it is so barely sketched out. It's just kind of there almost to accommodate the genre rather than to define it. And then the real questions are like, what is the nature of reality? What is the nature of time? Time is crumbling all around us. And like, maybe we live in biblical times and everything around us is just an illusion. I think Philip K. Dick defined reality as that which doesn't go away when you're not looking at it, which Mm. I think is such a like deeply confusing and beautiful point of view. Always for me, I think that, yes, that. I just recently read Ubik like for the first time, which I'm embarrassed about. It's been on my to-do list. I haven't done it either. (laughs) Really? Oh, God, you should. It's amazing. I mean, it's like, I won't reveal too much of the plot because it would be impossible, actually, (laughs) because it's like too complicated and falls apart as soon as you start describing it. But one of the sort of plot points is that the characters begin to interface with time in a sense where like time is different for each character. Like one character is in like 1920s and one character is in biblical times and one character is in modern times. And, And it's just like, they have to get from one place to the next before time collapses so completely that they have no vehicle to get there. Like they're traveling somewhere and all of a sudden, once they arrive there, like planes haven't been invented yet, even though where they left from was modern times or like elevators don't exist anymore. And they have to sort of travel this constantly crumbling and shifting landscape 
I don't know where I'm going with this, but what is reality if you don't have these like clear signifiers around you that define where you live in time, where you live in so it's like it's like a world of that time. It's only space, which is really fascinating. That sounds like a heck of a ride. So. <laughs> <laughs> Extra dimensional yeah. labyrinth. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I love science fiction that's like borderline insane, like that. You know, like you get the sense that the writer is not creating logical projections, but instead just like somehow is is moved by madness or is somehow like looking into the portal into through a portal at something more profound about reality that is concealed from us in our day-to-day lives. Dick was really gifted in his capacity to actually express that on the page. It's hard yeah. enough to have the thought, let alone convey the thought. But you know what's weird about Phil K. Dick is you, it's like you tried, somebody was asking me recently to like send a passage of Phil K. Dick that I loved. And there isn't any, like he wasn't a good writer. There's no like beautiful language. It's not literary in that way, but it's taken as a whole. It represents this like state of mind that is just so brilliant, but you sort of need to be, you need to kind of dive into it and wade through all the dreck. Which is, I think, true of a lot of science fiction, actually. You know, like, it's not always known for being a literary thing. It's so much of, like, a mass medium a lot of the time. Or something that's turned out quickly in, like, the olden days, turned out quickly for a profit. And you have to deal with a lot of ugliness to get to the beauty of it. I guess now I need to ask the obligatory uh, yacht questions. Lay on me, yeah. Yacht, you guys are performing at Moogfest. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything special planned as far as the performance goes? Probably. I mean, like the live performance of Yacht is always shifting, much like a Philip K. Dick novel. I mean, the reality of what our band is, is is just always in flux. It will probably involve four human beings, some number of analog instruments and some larger number of electronic instruments being performed in synchrony. Some video, we always have video, some kind of immersive audience participatory engagement video thing, which changes, and a lot of volume and a lot of physical touching and a lot of back and forth, hopefully. We're constantly rewriting everything. We rearrange songs, we rearrange the way that the video looks, we rearrange everything because we get bored very quickly. And so we have to always tread water. Well, hey, at the very least, it sounds like a good time, especially with the physical touching. Yeah, a lot of physical touching, a lot of physical, a lot of invasion of personal space. You guys put out a, a track, Plastic Soul, earlier in the year. Is there an impending album release? Yeah, there is. I mean, it's not for a while. We're, we're doing a lot of different stuff right now. We're recording. We're also working on a TV show with Amazon about being a band. It's like a comedy about being a support band called Support. So you're not playing yourself then? Uh, that's up in the air. We, we, <laughs> I don't think we will. I think we will hire professional actors to do that job. But for the time being, we're just writing it. But who knows? Things are always changing. So we're working on that. We just made an app recently. We're kind of like, we're kind of juggling a bunch of different projects. But we are also recording and we hope to have an album out next year. It's hard. We like, we'll make a song, like we made Plastic Soul, we finished it, and we didn't have nine more songs yet. But we didn't <laughs> want to wait a year for people to hear it, you know? So we just yeah. put it out. That's kind of how we go. Because... We're very much self-directed, you know, 21st century point-and-click internet people, and it's very hard for us to think in the long term in that way. We just like to make things, put them out, you know, package them up as beautifully as possible and send them out into the world so that we can keep being part of the conversation and keep moving. And then by the time we make the next thing, we won't be over the first thing. I don't know. You know, it's like, otherwise we get bored. I mean, normally, I guess you put out a single and put out a record right afterwards, but we just put out a single because we wanted to. And then at some point later, we'll make a record. But you guys have been pretty upfront about how much you you were doing your own thing and working at your own pace and not being confined to the machines that the record industry, for example, represents. 
Yeah, thank God, right? I mean, I can't imagine. <laughs> we've been doing this for too long, and we've been, we both come from DIY cultures. We spent the first eight years of playing music in our lives, putting on our own shows and silkscreening our own t shirts. And, you know, it's really hard to revoke that control once you've gotten used to it. I think a lot of people probably are happy to let go of some of those responsibilities. Mm. And we have here and there to people that we trust. But most of the time, if you see something out in the world that has our name on it, we made it like it emerged from one of our computers. Like the file came from one of our computers. Um, <laughs> because it's like, well, maybe we're a little bit drunk on power, but it's nice to be able to be in control of everything that you put out into the world and not be beholden to someone else's bottom line or someone else's priorities or someone else's idea of what your brand should be. It's awesome as a creative individual to be able to, you know, pursue everything you want. But then yeah. the various industries, they crave that focus to, you know, be able to market you and brand you and so on and so forth. But it's it's also difficult as an individual to actually keep operating on such a broad spectrum. Yeah, you kind of need a big skill set, you know, like I'm not saying that we're extremely skilled, but we've been forced by necessity to learn how to do a lot of the things that other people probably farm out, you know, like mm. and and for us. That's fun. I mean, I'm a writer, so I do a lot of like the text and the press releases and you know all this kind of editorial things that have to do with our band. John is a designer, so he does all the visual stuff. We are lucky enough that we have a broad skill base, and we love to learn how to use new kinds of software, so we can we can kind of represent ourselves to the world through the two dimensional medium that everyone perceives everything through anyway. You know, I think like <laughs> everyone is getting you know, 90% of the experience of any art through some kind of flat plane of LED, right? So like, whether you're a whole team with a marketing budget and, a, you know, a nice office and, you know, a bunch of infrastructure, or whether you're two people with like a bootleg copy of Photoshop, like the end result, if you do it well, is the same. So it's really pointless, it seems to me, to make things more complicated than are necessary. Lubin back around at Moogfest, you got a performance, you got your panel, but mm -hmm. certainly there's lots to see and do. Is there anything in particular that you're excited to see and do? Oh my God. I mean, I don't know. I, I just like, I, I very rarely had the opportunity to go to a conference like that and just be there on the ground the whole time. You mm. know, normally we play, sometimes we play these kinds of festivals and we just like go in and out. We have to go in and out. But I'm just excited to be there for four days and just like talk to everyone and just be open. Of course, I want to see like Georgia Moroder and Kraftwerk and I want to like go to all of the panels, but I, yeah, I don't even know. I'm just like, I want to drink it all up. It's insane to me that I will be seeing Giorgio Moroder. I didn't expect to ever see Giorgio Moroder. <laughs> I know, right? And they, I feel like they keep revealing new things. They've been so clever about the release of information about who's playing. It's like, oh, now Kraftwerk is playing. Oh, shit. So who knows? Maybe there'll be more th amazing things coming up that we haven't even heard about yet. Allegedly, there is more. <laughs> so, oh, God, how can they? I know. What are they trying Who's to do? Who's paying for this? <laughs> Who is paying for this? <laughs> That's no a very knows. good question. <laughs> big, big keyboard. <laughs> Thanks so much to Claire for talking with us. We're really excited to see her panel and performance at this year's Moogfest. In case you haven't checked out Yacht, here's a little sample. It's that track I mentioned, their newest one, Plastic Soul.
you can now get day tickets for Moogfest. So if you're only able to come out for certain performances or daytime or nighttime events, you can do that now. Pick what you can manage to attend the event for if you're going to be in the Asheville area. And if you are, like uh, tweet at us or message us on the forums or something. Like we've been saying, it would be awesome to meet up if any of our listeners are at Moogfest. So we're using these these Moogfest episodes as opportunities to also include some long overdue SciTech segments. We haven't spent nearly as much time in the past year as we ought to have devoting portions of Nerdy Show to SciTech news and discussion. What do you got for us, John? Well, we have E. coli bacteria that can now be used as actual measurement instruments in the intestines. What you just said sounds a little bit like nonsense. That's because it is nonsense. In fact, it's more of like a as with all things, right? It's a proof of concept. Uh-huh. What they've managed to actually pull off here is basically take a switch, essentially, in the genes and use that as a sensor. The genes so, of the bacteria? Yeah, in the bacteria. So basically, it gets exposed to chemical X, we'll call it for sake of argument here. Uh-huh. And then it'll actually swap the gene over to a different state. And then when the rats shit it out, they'll be able to just check for that one marker and then be able to see what was actually going on in the intestines. Okay, okay, so you're saying that uh, scientists have genetically engineered bacteria to alter the state of a gene to act as an early warning device for something weird inside the body. Like if it detects a certain kind of other bacteria or something, when it's excreted, it will... I don't know, why is this useful? Is that First of all, am I right? And second of all, why is this useful? You are mostly right. Um, it will, of course, change while it's in the intestines and not just when it's excreted. That's just the easiest way to get to them. So uh-huh. effectively, when the animals shit them out, then the you know doctor slash scientist can just grab it and then analyze it. The cool part about it is, is that the switch also stays flipped for at least a week, and that's through multiple generations of bacteria. So that's kind of like the real thing here. It kind of spreads throughout the actual colony. Ironically, the trouble that they've had is is that they they tried it out with um, like classic E. coli, we'll call it. But that was actually isolated. Not not to be confused with new E. coli, right? The taste of a new generation. Well, the the whole problem with your uh, supposed taste of a new generation is, is that literally or or E. coli clear or E. coli blue or caffeine free E. coli or. um, Well, unfortunately, it's it's more like new Coke here, but. Well, that was originally what I was doing. Then I decided to mash it up with Pepsi and things got weird. Anyway, the (laughs) joke. Pepsi perfect. Pepsi, Pepsi perfect, which is a flavor that I really hope in 2015 we'll see. I mean, why not? They're doing the Reeboks. They have to, right? We got the Reeboks. We got people faking the hoverboards. I mean, and and Nike apparently is coming out with actual auto lacers like next year or something, right? So they've claimed. Yeah, so they've claimed the real deal, not the fake stuff that they were charging thousands of dollars for. Yeah. What was it like? Ten grand starting. Yeah, Most of I mean, them went it, for like 50, 60 or something. It was for charity. It was for a good cause, but y'all know we wanted them, so... I hope you listeners can follow our conversation right now. If you can't, you go back and you watch your Back to the Future 2, and that'll help some of it. Uh, and then the Soda Wars. <laughs> yeah, it went from Bacteria to Pepsi and Coke Trivia to Back to the Future 2. So, pause here. Read the Wiki- go to the Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, read the Wikipedia for those pages and come back to us. So the, admittedly, the E. coli Wikipedia page, I don't know if you're going to... That could be a minefield. Uh, so where were we? Um, oh, yes. What's the point of these bacteria markers? Oh, oh, oh. wait, wait, wait. First, the, the, the serious problem is, is that basically the E. coli that researchers use in labs were largely derived. I guess Right, E. coli uh, classic. That's how we got on this. E. coli classic. Basically, it's sort of like in GitHub or something when you fork a project. 
they forked it back in like let's say 1940 or something like that and in the meantime uh john i love forking as much as the next person but what are you talking about what does that mean forking is basically when you take a copy of a project normally when it comes down to programming it's where you then go off and do a completely separate thing actually i think the entire mac operating system if i'm not mistaken is a fork off of unix <laughs> i.e linux and so they've gone off and you know sometimes you can fork reintegrate off. stuff sometimes you can't the whole point is though is that this c coli has been in the lab growing and going through generations whatever as a strain for decades not inside oh rodent intestines right okay so what you're saying is there's been a specific strain of e coli that has been used and manufactured for labs for at least some time at least like 50 70 years yeah and therefore it's actually not concurrent with any of the e coli occurring in, in the natural world yeah actually it says here that they've lived only in the laboratory since 1940s so yeah so what it fucking has good literally are they? been like 70 years that's really weird and so, of course, in the meantime, 70 years of bazillions of generations of E. coli adapting to their surroundings, etc. scientific um, term. Right. Adaptation. Bazillions. Bazillions. That's um, <laughs> To imply a ridiculous amount of generations, since, of course, bacteria do go through, like, it's literally bazillions. Literally. Bazillions. Literally bazillions, guys. Um, but yeah, no, we, we get the point. Okay, so... They were using that weird vanilla with a twist of lime E. coli and it from the uh, 40s, which made it really classy. Yeah, super classy, guys. Um, and then they were like, well, fuck that noise. We're not even current. We're all like wax cylinders and we need to be MP3 players going up against M16s and nuclear warheads, none of which were developed in the 1940s. Oh, and of course, tactical Patriot missiles. Yes. Man, I hope people but, can follow this. This is getting crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the gist of it is, though, is that what they had tested in, let's call it the lab grade 1940s E. coli, they were actually able to carry over into a modern strain from the rat's intestines. Okay. So that, of course, was adapted to the environment. They were able to just take the stuff that they had done with the one, transfer it over into the other, thanks to, of course, all the modern genetic engineering, synthetic biology, et cetera, et cetera. And then they were able to actually put it into the intestines. It worked. It actually, you know, flicked the switch and it stayed that way for like over a week. So, and wait, then it shot out and I, then it was I, there. I feel like I but missed no. a step again. <laughs> You're saying that they, they were able to like combine the E. coli classic with the new E. coli they're able to transfer the upgrades over to the more modern day million variety. Uh, okay, so so they because it's an old model, they it's very malleable. They know how to do stuff to it. They did stuff to it yes. and found that they were able to actually have that carry on over to the modern E. coli. Gotcha. They did the same upgrade that they did to the old one, basically to the new one, and bing, bang, boom, now they have switches that can actually survive. See, that's the problem. Like, most people aren't really necessarily aware of the incredible battles between all the different types of bacteria and all manner of other beasties in your intestines all the time. Like the E. coli, of course, you know, it's this sort of an irony there. You're turning them into sensors, but your sensors are actually living organisms that can be eaten just like anything else can. So you have to actually increase their survivability. Otherwise, they'll just get eaten and then you won't get anything excreted out the other end to test. So that goes back to one of my original questions. Why? Because you can extend this research and give them a whole package of things to analyze. 
And then when it comes out the back of you, you can analyze it for like, I don't know, a bazillion different diseases, all sorts of stuff. Maybe they'll even be able to figure out a sort of like time component. It's basically like sticking a tape recorder up your butt. Except it's in your mouth so it can come out your butt, which is how I produce all of my noise core jams. Okay, that's got to be a band, right? Well, no, it's a solo project, obviously. Well, but what if it was a group project? That's involving like some sort of docking. Okay, what kind of docking are you saying here? Because that that's a loaded statement. That that phraseology is very specific. I'm being vaguely specific. I just can't quite remember which all one it is. You don't even know what that is. Let's just move on. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that it's the right one. I think meat stuffing's the other, and I think that we are all on the same page here. (laughs) Oh man. We'll see if the audience is. I'm not gonna explain any of that. We were talking about tape recorders, right? We were at one point talking about tape recorders. We really need to be talking about bacteria, I guess. Okay, so what you're saying is you're saying that effectively they've created a biological tricorder, at least for the guts. Sure, except for the fact that the tricorder would require that it actually is able to test for a large amount of stuff. This is like tricorder version 1.0 for the intestines. So you say... Hey, man, this guy have IBS. Um, For some reason, they can't tell that just from, you know, what he does on a daily basis. And he eats the E. coli and the E. coli says, yeah, dude, totally IBS. And then they say, oh, hey, man, this guy's got uh, what's another poop problem? Uh, Or it detects like an ulcer or something. And then they're going to give you the real test. There is no magical tricorder yet. This is kind of like the closest thing to it in a roundabout kind of way. You know, you've got a couple of ways to go about this. You either send down one of those scary ass capsule spider bots. Or you, you know, have somebody shove a tube up your ass. So, you know, uh, this is another potential tool. You would only have to eat this stuff. And then if they're actually capable of surviving, it's possible that you could just routinely, you know, send out piles of your own feces and uh-huh. uh, get tested and find as, out about stuff way before anybody else would ever know. As you and, do. you know, from the comfort of your own poop. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so maybe, just maybe, instead of you know, the medical science is pushing towards like, say, uh, nanobots or mysterious magical scanning machines. It'll all be um, humanity manipulating the microscopic natural world to get our answers about what's wrong in our guts. Sure. On a somewhat related note, uh, Bruce Sterling, who, of course, is famous for, you know, basically doing a cyberpunk genre sci-fi novels and uh, his futurism work. I mean, he's pretty much a fixture at South by Southwest at this point. He actually did a book where that was one of the predominant features was, you know, chapter after chapter about how we were going to be modifying bacteria like, let's say, E. coli to produce all sorts of handy dandy chemicals like, you know, why brush your teeth if you don't have to? These will just clean yourself out, not damage your teeth, etc. All that kind of stuff. Basically laying out an entire industry of E. coli modified solutions to all of your household problems. There's a bizarre precedent for this. Right. And the other cool part, though, about the project is, is that most everybody's been working on purely synthetic biology, which is sort of a bottoms up approach where you would try to make like circuits practically out of DNA and build up an organism from there. And this, on the other hand, is, you know, looking over the vast, vast expanse of pre-created solutions by nature and trying to harvest that for the most useful thing. I'm looking at this as a meet in the middle kind of a thing. If you get really good at one and you also get good at the other, you can combine them to do insane things. So this is some good stuff. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's uh, that's your moment of bioscience with John. 
If you want more bioscience with John, uh, comment on this episode's page or message us on the forums or Twitter or something. But we'll be back with more SciTech stuff because we have one more Moogfest episode on the way. And that's where we're going to be talking with, with Make Magazine, Wired Magazine, and Boing Boing's Mark Fraunfelder and the world's first government-recognized cyborg, Neil Harbison of the Cyborg Foundation. So once again, Moogfest, April 23rd through 27th. John and I will be there. Kristen will be there. Brian from Flame On will be there. Nerdy Show will be there in force, checking out cool stuff. If you're in that neck of the woods in Asheville, North Carolina, come say hi. Check out all of our links on this episode's page for more details about the stuff we talked about in this episode. And of course, links to Omni Reboot, Yacht, and other cool stuff Claire's done. Our RPG support drive is still underway. It's where you get to choose what tabletop role-playing system we play next for an RPG one-shot. I want to kind of do a thing with that, maybe. What is that? Well, what I'd like to actually do is read over all of the codexes from the entire Mass Effect 1, Mass Effect 2, and Mass Effect 3, and basically come up with an entire technological field guide, practically, and then use that in the tabletop for Mass Effect if it were elected. John, that sounds insane. I mean, Uh, I might not have probably should have used field guide, especially since the atomic robo one is actually like real work. That sounds like you should be actually writing a companion book for the Mass Effect series rather than like assisting a tabletop role playing game. Also, how is it even possible for you to do that? Do what? That's like novels. Have you read the codex? It's quite extensive. It is quite extensive. And the amount of theories in there are all actually like really, really rationally put together, which I think is terrifying. You're talking about every piece of text in the entire trilogy of games. And many of them are just long, long, long. I mean, it's fascinating stuff, but I mean, I've also played through each one of the games like in excess of four times, practically. Did you read all the codexes? I believe so, although I've probably forgotten half of it. The codexes, it's like I mean, I started to in the first game and I stopped. Ultimately, the codex, you don't need to read them to play the game and to get all the interesting relationship stuff. It's all like how the Internet works in space. There's codec entry after codec entry about just communication technologies. So what John is saying, and stop me if I'm wrong here, John, is that uh, you full well intend to participate in the Mass Effect role playing game should it win. Are you volunteering to be the game master? I mean, that's a lot of information. I don't know about all this game mastering. I think it would probably be better if you had ever played a tabletopper to, you know, be game master. I, I would say so. I don't think you're qualified, but you sound like you're just, I don't know, Mass Effect Field Guide. Them's big words, John. The way that I figure it approximates down to if I was to play a scientist based character and I happen to know everything about the ins and outs of the technology, I could probably make up the most plausible bullshit ways out of scenarios through technology and science. That sounds really cool to me. And that would, of course, be the primary focus there. Minimal guns and almost all like, oh, I just found this circuit board over here. Why, I'll have it warping through gates in no time. You know, relays. John, would Sorry, you... Sorry, too would, much Stargate. Without having that knowledge ahead of time, would you want to, like, choose the name, race, and class of your character and do a short bio on that character? I've been considering it. It's it's tough competition already with what's out there. After all, Colin said a, a kind of a weird prince there with his uh, sniper volus. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know. Which was then made bizarrely and, and terrifyingly plausible with the backstory that he made. So there's that. Thankfully, the other character at least vaguely makes sense. But man, that that volus 
Anyway, okay. I kind of just randomly threw that out there because I was kind of thinking about it because I started playing Mass Effect 2 again, which was kind of a mistake, but it's it in 3D now, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... <laughs> Every game is better in total 3D when, like, the games are actually redesigned to work with it. Oh, I, Holy shit. I know it is. It's it's the fucking tits. That's what it is. You Re- just start going around and looking at mundane detail that you never even knew was there. Like, mm. hey, there are pipes down this hole. That's awesome. 3D gaming is no joke, man. Yeah, but everybody thinks it is, which is really kind of sad. So, John, would are you going to make a uh, character profile for your, the character you'd play? Yes. Okay, that you've heard it here. It's confirmed. John will totally do that. As a scientist, race yet to be determined, but uh, there will be a hell of a lot of bizarrely insane tech stuff that probably doesn't make rational sense, but hey, whatever. That's that's what we're all here for, man. Uh, so if it's out, we'll link to it on this episode's page. If it's not out, keep an eye posted for an RPG one-shot character pitch featuring John's Mass Effect character. Word. And here's an update on uh, how that RPG support drive is going. Jeffrey Voss contributed and said five bucks for Star Wreck and five for Mouse Guard. And then we took the RPG support drive to Megacon, where some Megacon attendees contributed a little bit more towards Star Wreck, the Star Trek parody RPG, and brought Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness into the running with three whole dollars and World of Darkness from zero to 25. Last but not least, contributing towards the support goal, Big Bad Shadow Man gave five bucks for the new Ghostbusters Resurrection episode. There's less than a week left in our RPG support drive, and the competition is fierce. Star Wreck is in the lead, followed by Shadowrun, followed by Firefly, followed by Mass Effect, then Mouse Guard, then World of Darkness, then Dresden Files, Fiasco, Kobolds Ate My Baby, and finally Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Unfortunately, Apocalypse World, Gamma World, and Sagas Modern haven't gotten any love this time around, but they might yet. If you know what kind of adventure you want us to have, even if the odds are against you, you could start something. Be a rabble rouser and get others to join your cause. And as always, no matter what system wins, we'll give you an amazing show. We're extremely close towards reaching our first stretch goal of the month at $600, where we unlock outtakes from our X-Files episode with Chris Carter. And then the big one, if we reach $800 this month, you unlock deleted scenes from the most recent episode of Dungeons & Doritos. So if you enjoyed listening to this episode, no matter who you are, just contribute a buck even, and it'll make us ever so happy, and help Nerdy Show do more awesome things. Want to give a shout out to all the great people who visited us at Megacon. They hung out with the uh, the puppet of Jamela Dalla Egbert III, one of the characters from Dungeons and Doritos. Got involved in some hard truths with Doug, and uh, some other nerdy debates at the Nerdy Show booth. Also, we had a great group of people come out to see our panel on our adventures in tabletop role playing podcasts. Speaking of, if you're one of those awesome people and you got one of our download codes to pick up all of our role playing shows in one handy dandy package. Well, turns out an awful lot of you did that, so much so that the link stopped working. It'll start working again soon. But in the meantime, absolutely everything that was available in that one convenient package is available on nerdyshow.com. Just go to the front page and click the various buttons for the different shows. So thanks so much for listening. Taking us out, we've got a, uh, a track off the Best of Symphony of Science collection. Symphony of Science is where uh, Melody Sheep remixes inspiring words from great scientists and this one, appropriate to uh, exploring the science fiction angle of all of it, is called Monsters of the Cosmos, dealing with uh, the space whales, with both the space whales that might be lurking and also true scary things such as black holes and um, asteroids, though, the colossal scale. Yeah, world killer asteroids. So here's monsters. The monst- size of Jupiter. The size of Jupiter. That's pretty fucking big. Jesus. That's like <laughs> 50 Earths or more. It's quite a lot. Quite a few Earths and football fields within Earths. 
This is Monsters of the Cosmos by Symphony of Science. I will travel where no man has dared to go. Into the black hole. Why, that's crazy. If you fall in, you never come out. Stretching you from head to toe. Death by black hole. There are monsters out in the cosmos that can swallow entire stars. Inside these equations, there's a monster. Anything that springs too close will be pulled in. Gravity is infinite at the center of a black hole. Time stops. Space makes no sense. Every galaxy has got one big black hole in the middle and millions of smaller black holes. An anomaly of gravity so strange. Nothing is more seductive. Nothing. There are monsters out in the cosmos that can swallow entire stars, that can destroy space itself, completely invisible. Anything that strains too close will be pulled in. In the last century, black holes have gone from being mathematical curiosities to real objects in the cosmos seemingly crucial to the formation of galaxies. Nothing can escape it, even light. There must be millions and millions of black holes. Millions and millions and millions zipping around our galaxy. Nothing there to light them up. Millions and millions of black holes. Millions and millions and millions zipping around our galaxy. Nothing there to light them up. At the heart of a large black hole is a singularity. It's a singularity. Point of infinite density. The accepted laws of physics break down. Break down. Break down. Break down. Black holes form when giant stars run out of fuel and collapse under their own weight. Under their own weight. Gun remnants of burned out stars. Burned out stars. Truth is stranger than sci-fi. An anomaly of gravity so strange. Nothing is more seductive. There are monsters out in the cosmos that can swallow entire stars, that can destroy space itself, completely invisible. Anything that strains too close will be pulled in. Millions and millions of black holes. Zipping around our galaxy, nothing there to light them up. Millions and millions of black holes. Millions and millions and millions. Zipping around our galaxy, nothing there to light them up. Nothing is bigger and scarier than a black hole. The boundary between the known universe and a place beyond the reach of science. Oh, hey, you made it to the end of the episode. Well, I've got some sexy secret things to tell you. Uh, not really too secret. I do say them at the end of every episode. But if you liked what you heard, it is imperative that you follow my every word. First, I want to thank you for listening to Nerdy Show. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows in the Nerdy Show network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on iTunes, shopping at nerdyshow.com store, or, most importantly, by directly donating to the network. Any size contribution gets you exclusive nerdy show outtakes, dramatic readings, images, and other crazy stuff and lets you participate in our monthly support drives. Just go to nerdyshow.com support to chip in. 
But if you really want to level up, find out how you or your company can underwrite this or other Nerdy Show programming. Just visit nerdyshow.com slash sponsorships. For more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programs, community forums, videos, articles, and more, head over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show podcasts via the iTunes store, and for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. So to recap, tell a friend, donate to the show, and connect with the entire Nerdy Show network crew online. We're glad to be your home for authentic nerdy entertainment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 